Hey, everybody. We're glad that you are joining us today. Just want to let you know that today's episode, we have a little bit of a, a topic that you may not want young children around. We're talking about human trafficking today, and there just may be some topics or, or, or words said that uh, you may not want to have to explain to young children yet. So we just want to give you a friendly warning. We're glad you're here. It's nothing crazy, nothing drastic. Stay tuned. Here we go. Good job, Daniel. Welcome back, GPS to God. We are so glad that you are back with us. We have a very special guest with us. We're going to get to that really quick. But uh, first, let's go around the table. That is building anticipation, boys. That's, <laughs> it's called a tease in the radio business. But uh, Daniel Sanders, Stefano Patterson, Zach Edson, and out from behind the producer's desk, we have Mr. Adam Howron sitting at the big table with us today. But our special guest, we won't make you wait anymore. We have with us Mr. Fuzz Rana. Fuzz, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Now, we're, we're going to start with an easy one. We're, we're going to do your, you know, all your credentials here in a second. But <laughs> Fuzz, how did you come to the name of Fuzz? Yeah, well, my uh, first name is Fuzzle. My father was born in India, and he, he was uh, actually a Muslim. And uh, it's my name's an, an Urdu name. And so I've uh, always gone by Fuzz since I was a little kid. Just easier on everybody. Well, it's definitely easier for me. So I'm glad you said your first name so I don't have to anymore. It's just Fuzz. But uh, Fuzz is the president and CEO and senior scholar of Reasons to Believe. If you're thinking reasons to believe that sounds familiar, that's because our buddy, Mr. Hugh Ross, Dr. Hugh Ross, is also part of Reasons to Believe, who was on here a few episodes ago or more than that. But uh, uh, Fuzz works with, with Hugh Ross, and, and we're going to see which one we can stump. We were not able to stump Hugh. We're going to see if we can stump Fuzz, but I'm going to guess no. Not this group. Not this group, <laughs> absolutely. But Fuzz is the president, CEO, senior scholar. He's an author, and he is also a biochemist by trade. And if I said any of that wrong, we'll be corrected here in just a second. But, but uh, Fuzz, officially, thank you for being here. We're, we're glad that you took are taking some time out to uh, come talk to us. Yeah, my, my pleasure. I'm glad to do it. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, hopefully I can live up to, uh, to, to the Hugh Ross billing there. So. <laughs> you know. We won't hold it against you if you don't. So, But uh, uh, Fuzz is going to talk actually about some human trafficking issues and concerns, very uh, topical uh, thing going on in the world today. Not, not, you know, of course, in our neighborhood and in our country, but everywhere around the world, this is a problem. And that's, that's going to be the main topic of today's discussion. But we are going to start a little bit. We're going to back up before we get to the heavy hitters. What is a biochemist? What does a biochemist do? A chemist is somebody who studies molecules, right? Atoms and molecules. And chemists are interested in how are those atoms arranged in, in space and how do they interact to form molecules? And then how do those molecules interact with each other to undergo chemical changes? And that's uh, a biochemist does the same thing, except the molecules of biochemist studies are those that make up the cell, that make up living organisms. And biochemists are interested in how do those chemical changes contribute to biological processes 
you know, and, and how do they contribute to life? So uh, you can think of a biochemist as really studying the, the, the building block materials that make up uh, cells and, and make up living systems. Yeah, we ain't stumping him. No. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your, your upbringing. You, you mentioned your father was a Muslim. Uh, yes. can, can you tell us just a little bit about your, your upbringing and your family, your parents? Yeah, well, you know, as I mentioned, uh, my father was from India. He was a Muslim, came to the United States uh, uh, after getting a, a, a PhD in nuclear physics uh, in Canada. And my mom uh, was from a, a German background, and she was a non-practicing Catholic when they met. And so uh, I grew up in a home where, uh, you, know, you know, my parents had two different religious perspectives, though the, the dominant perspective in our household was an Islamic one because of my father. Uh, and, and so uh, I grew up in, in West Virginia. So at that you know, time, there weren't really mosques around. Uh, I can remember with going with my father from time to time to um, f some of his friends' homes who uh, he was part of a, a Muslim community and uh, and praying there in, in the basement of people's homes where they would have these prayer meetings. And when I was a, a teenager, I became very interested in Islam. In fact, I even recited the Shahada, which is the the declaration that Allah is the one true God, Muhammad is his uh, only uh, prophet, the, the final of, uh, prophet of all the prophets. And I began to read from the Quran. I learned how to pray. And again, seriously explored Islam for, I don't know, probably a good year, year and a half before I just became disillusioned for a number of reasons and, and settled into a position of agnosticism as I went to college. And began taking courses in chemistry and biology. Uh, but but that's a little bit about what it was like, you know, for me growing up. Coming up in a, a kind of under a Muslim umbrella in your household, how did you then find Christianity? Uh, as I mentioned, as an undergraduate student, I essentially adopted a position of agnosticism. And, and that uh, was partly fueled by the fact that I was, you know, taking courses in chemistry and biology and uh, was beginning to adopt what I would call a scientific worldview, where I just simply didn't see any kind of need or necessity for God, that that science was ultimately going to, to explain everything. And part of, you know, mainstream thinking in biology is that uh, evolution can account for the origin and the design and the history of life. And you know, I reasoned, and I, I meet a lot of people, even to this very day, who reason in the same way, that, you know, if evolution can explain everything in biology, then what role is there for a creator? There's no role for a creator at all. And, and that was the perspective that I held. When I went to graduate school to begin to, to pursue my degree in biochemistry, I was immersed in the, in the study of of again the molecules that make up life and was deeply impressed with the design that I saw these systems are elegant they're sophisticated there's an ingenuity to these systems and and that uh, really triggered a number of questions in my mind you know most at the forefront was how do 
we as scientists explain where these incredible systems come from. And this is called the origin of life problem. And I very quickly recognized in, in short order that evolution could not explain uh, the origin of life. It couldn't explain where these incredible systems come from. And at that point, I had to conclude that there must be a mind that it's that's behind life itself. There, there must be some agent that's responsible for for life and in, in its origin and its basic design. Uh, and I didn't know who that creator was, or even if I related to that creator. And it was several months later that a pastor uh, challenged me to read the Bible. I'd, I'd never read the Bible. I was 23 years old at that time. And reading through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you know, convinced me that 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 Jesus was somebody that I needed to pay a lot of attention to. And and in fact, um, as as I read through the Sermon on the Mount, I was I was confronted with my sin, my my shortcomings, and uh, realized that there was no way that I could live the authentically righteous life that Jesus taught. In, in, in the Gospel of Matthew and on the Sermon on the Mount, though I realize that this is the right way to live. This is the way that I want to live. And uh, one of the, this pastor's friends had given me a little booklet on how to become a Christian that I worked my way through. And, and so it was really encountering uh, the Creator's fingerprints in the design of the cell and, you know, experiencing the person of Christ through the pages of Scripture that, that brought me to the point of recognizing my sin, my need for a savior, and uh, acknowledging that it was through Christ that I was going to be saved. I'm just curious, like your upbringing between your parents, uh, once they heard you, you know, reading and exploring more of the gospel, was there a tug or a, uh, an acceptance or uh, anything as far as your parents' background? Yes. Uh, the short answer is yes. Now, when I was exploring Christianity, I was I was not at home any longer. I was uh, off at graduate school, um, <clears throat> but when I told my my parents that I had become a Christian, um, my mom not was not as upset as my father was. My father was furious with me, and in fact, that that pretty much ended our relationship for all intents and purposes. You know, he basically demanded that I renounce my faith as a Christian, and I simply couldn't do that because I, I felt like, uh, again, I had encountered uh, the person of Christ, and and uh, and I felt like I had discovered that which is true, and um, and I just simply couldn't uh, renounce my faith as a Christian, and so uh, that pretty much uh, brought an, an end to our relationship. Is it still that way? Oh, my, uh, well, yes. I mean, my father died, gosh, it's been a number of years ago now. So uh, uh, he died in the, in the late 1990s. So, uh, but at the time that he died, that we were, again, not on good terms in terms of it, with respect to our relationship. Wow. I mean, for a Muslim, you know, when somebody uh, embraces the, uh, the Christian faith as an example, you know, it's number one, it's considered to be this affront to God, right? Because in Islam, the view of God is uh, one of, of, of oneness, right? That, you know, that uh, Allah is unique, that there's no other 
being like him, no other being as great as he is, and to uh, to have a Trinitarian view of God or to say that Jesus is the Son of God, though Muslims misunderstand what is meant by the, the Son of God, you are elevating another to God's level, right? And so that the, the view is that that undermines God's greatness. And so it's it, to embrace the Christian faith is to commit the ultimate act of blasphemy, but also uh, in in that culture, in an Islamic culture, you know, the, the idea is that if your parents were of a particular religious perspective, so are you, right? And so to, you know, I, I had a friend a number of years ago who was from India, like my father, he was an older gentleman. And, uh, and when I told him I was a Christian, he said, you can't be a Christian because your father was a Muslim. And, and it's that mindset is that, that you are what your parents are. And so when you, when I rejected Islam, it, it was, it was not only a, a theological affront, but it was an affront to the, my heritage. That's the way my father viewed it, is that you have rejected your family, you have rejected your heritage. So um, yeah, it's, it's a, you know, a profound, uh, a, it, it, it's, it's not a trivial thing to you know, to convert away from Islam into to another religious perspective, particularly Christianity. It, it, it's in, it was interesting to me. My my brother is an atheist, and um, uh, my father was comfortable, completely comfortable with my brother's atheism. Wow. It, but for me to be a Christian, that was something that he would simply couldn't stomach. It's almost like he was, you know. You can show no favoritism towards God, but now you've picked a new you've picked a new leader over here, and that that you know hurts yeah. more to understand. So, Fuzz, you talked about um, you came to a scientific conclusion that God existed. How are humans unique to God's other creations? Yeah, well, you know, th this is something that um, you know Scripture teaches, right? That humans bear God's image and. And what Scripture tells us is that we're unique in that that um, in that sense, right? That we stand apart from all of God's other creatures, and you know because we bear God's image, we have dominion over the creation. We are to be caretakers of the creation. We're, you know, we were given the command to subdue the world, to bring it under our control. Uh, and, and so, as human beings, we're the only creature that has been given that command. And so there must be something special about us if we're able to do that. And, and yet when you look at what mainstream science has said for probably 150, 170 years about humans, the message is that really human beings are no different than any other creature. You know, the, 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 the mainstream scientific view is that human beings, uh, like all life on earth, is the product of evolution. And if that's the case, then we're just simply another branch on the evolutionary tree of life. We're no better or worse than any other creature that, that has ever existed on earth. And, um, and in fact, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, the process is unguided, it's undirected, and, and therefore there's not any ultimate meaning or purpose to human existence. We're not an inevitability of the evolutionary process even. We're just a lucky happenstance. 
And so that perspective on, on humans is diametrically opposed to the biblical view, which again, human beings are the crown of creation, that we have a special status in the creation. And, and so when you look at uh, evolutionary anthropology, oftentimes you'll see this idea that human beings are only different in degree, not kind from other creatures, right? That's a That idea really has shaped uh, the question of human origins for since Darwin's time for 150, maybe even up to 170 years. Uh, but yet what I find very interesting is that in recent years, there's a growing minority of evolutionary anthropologists that have said, wait a minute, uh, there's something special about human beings uh, that we actually are different in kind, not different in degree. Uh, that that we really do stand apart. Uh, and, and this idea is called human exceptionalism, uh, that, that human beings are exceptional. And the, the scientific community thinks that what makes us exceptional is our capacity for symbolism. That is, human beings are the only creatures on the planet uh, that exist today and, then and most likely that have ever existed that can actually represent I, the world and represent ideas with symbols and that we have this ability to manipulate those symbols, to combine them, recombine them, uh, to order them in different ways. And by doing so, we now can communicate through symbols uh, in, in very complex ways. This is the basis for language. This is the basis for music, for art. And, and, and so we, we stand apart from other creatures in having that, that capacity for symbolism. I think if you uh, hold a, to a particular model for the image of God, that you could see this idea of our capacity for symbolism as really being a scientific descriptor of, of what we might call the image of God. And, and so it's interesting to me that with this idea of human exceptionalism that is beginning to emerge, we can actually make use that to make a, a case that the biblical understanding of the image of God is actually a legitimate idea scientifically. It's not just simply a theological idea, or you're not just simply holding to that view because of theological commitments. There's now, again, mounting evidence that, that human beings really do stand apart from all other creatures. And, you know, and, and that to me is, is absolutely profound because the scientists that are actually advocating that view are not theists necessarily. These are people that are deeply committed to the evolutionary paradigm, but they argue that, again, there's something surprisingly <clears throat> distinct about human beings that is, that is really hard to deny. You mentioned evolution several times, touching on that topic. And I, most people in America understand what evolution is, on a basic level at least. But how do you think it has affected the culture in the U.S. as it relates to religion and most specifically Christianity? Yeah. Well, you know, th th this idea of evolution is, um, it has some pretty insidious implications. You know, when you, when you think about how most evolutionary biologists understand evolution, th they see it as this unguided process that is, that is just simply meandering. There's no rhyme or reason to 
what's happening in an evolutionary sense. It's it's all based on a sequence of chance events. And as the late Stephen Jay Gould said, who's an who was an evolutionary biologist, if you rewound the tape of life and you let evolution run again, the outcome would be different every time. That that there isn't any kind of end goal or purpose uh, or or to to the evolutionary process. And moreover, the the view is that evolution produces designs that are substandard, that are imperf imperfections, that it's not creating the, these perfect systems. These are inherently flawed systems. So if if you say that this is the process that by which human beings come to be, then you're you're fundamentally saying that again, there's nothing special about human beings. And so this is a, I think, a direct assault on the biblical view that that again human beings are, are special, that we're the crown of creation, that we stand apart from all other creatures. But but think about this. I mean, if if you think that you're the product of evolution and that there's no ultimate meaning or purpose to your life, that you are just simply this, just are here because of sheer happenstance, right? That 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 there there's no value to to you as an individual or to other human beings. How does that impact the way you think about yourself? How does that impact the way you think about your life or your or you, the reason for your existence, if there is even a reason for your existence? And how does that impact the way that you you treat other people? And, and so, whether people like to acknowledge this or not, and, and this statement is going to will will make people angry when I say it. I know that because I get an angry response. Because, but the fact of the matter is when you look at our the world that we live in and the injustices in the world, the evil that's in the world, uh, the, the confusion, the hopelessness, uh, I think th these are, are consequences of our society in a broad sense accepting an, an evolutionary perspective on, on human origins and, you know, accepting the, the outcome of, a, of an evolutionary worldview in terms of human nature and human identity. And, and, you know, and, and this is in stark contrast to, I think, the <laughs> biblical view, you know, where if human beings are made in God's image, then, you know, if we truly are imaging God, uh, then it means that every human being is sacred. There's a sacredness to human each human being, that each human being has infinite worth and value. Uh, and, and that, again, has a tremendous impact on how you think about yourself and how you think about other people. You know, in in that framework, you, you know, injustices are intolerable. Evil is intolerable. And that there's enormous motivation to stand up against that which is wrong in the world, uh, where the, the ultimate goal is to, you know, is to produce, you know, or work towards human flourishing and to work towards mitigating uh, you know, pain and suffering uh, in the world because the, those people that are suffering are people that are precious people that, you know, again, are valuable beyond anything that we could ever imagine. So, you know, this idea of, of human origins has profound implications that I think um, contributes to, I think, many, much of the, 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 the evil and the wickedness and the injustice that, that, we see in the world that we live in.
So one of the, the evils and injustices going on today is human trafficking, <coughs> which we hinted at earlier. I think you took a, a mission trip to Cambodia, and maybe that's where you were first exposed to some of the consequences of human trafficking. Can you tell us about that? My, my wife and I were, were part of a small team that traveled to Cambodia. It was, it's was it been a few years ago now. And, and we were there in support of, a, of, a, of an organization called Agape International uh, Ministries. And, and uh, th- those are the, those people that work for that organization are the real heroes. Uh, we were there just simply in a support role. But uh, the, the reason we w- were there is because of, again, this issue of human trafficking. Human trafficking happens here in the U.S. To I mean, it's horrifying to think that that's the case. But even, you know, in the developed world, human trafficking takes place. Um, but in, in some parts of the world, the human trafficking is taking place as well, but it's out there in the open. In the U.S., when people are trafficked, it's always in the dark, right? It's always underground, right? It's hidden. It's hidden. In, in some parts of the world, the human trafficking is right there out in the open, and and Cambodia is one of those countries, sadly, and 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 so we went to a small village outside of Phnom Penh called Sway Pak. And if you actually look up Sway Pak in Wikipedia, the first couple of sentences communicate that this is a international destination for child sex tourism. In, in other words, people from all over the world will travel to Cambodia to go to that small village to have their their way with young girls. Mm-hmm. It's it's abs- and this is out there in the open uh, that in which this is taking place. This is not hidden in the dark recesses of the community. And Sway Pak is a little tiny village. I mean, the the roads in that village are dirt roads. Uh, it it's you know astounding to think that th- this wide spot in the road if you drove by it is this international uh you know child sex tourism and so you know it, we were there again supporting uh, aim which is you know on the which located them their organization in Sway Park with this idea that they were going to be at ground zero as they were going to take <coughs> on this issue of, of child sex trafficking but you know one of the questions that we asked continually while we were there is why is this even possible? How is this even possible, you know, for, for a community to tolerate? The, I mean, when you, you go down the Main Street at one point in time, literally every building on Main Street was either a hotel that that housed people that were there for child sex tourism, or they, it was a brothel. I mean, how could you tolerate that in your community? You know, and, you know, it's it's a it's not a clear cut answer, but, you know, one of the things that we all walked away with is really recognizing that ideas matter, that I, that, that the ideology of a, of a, of a society has profound implications. And, and so, you know, in, in, in Cambodia, people are still dealing with the after effects of the evil perpetrated by the Khmer Rouge. There's intense poverty, intense corruption, uh, there's a, a devaluing, which is not unusual in, in 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 Asian countries. There's a devaluing of women and young girls at the, you know, where boys and, and men are considered to be, 
you know, a, 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 you know, superior in, in the, those cultures. But part of it too is is the religious system in in Cambodia. It's it's Buddhism is the primary religious system. Uh, but in that form of Buddhism that's practiced in Cambodia involves reincarnation and, and paying off karmic debt. And, and so if think about this, if 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 you believe in reincarnation and you see somebody suffering, right, for regardless of what they're suffering from, but you see somebody suffering, the way you view that suffering is that, well, this person did something in their previous life that led to their rebirth in such a way that they are marginalized, that they are going through difficult ex experiences, that they they deserve this. This is something that they deserve. And that if you intervene and to try to relieve that pain and suffering they're going through, you actually are doing them a disservice because you're interrupting their ability to pay off their karmic debt, which is going to have ramifications for them in their next lifetime. And then, of course, part of Buddhism is the reason why people suffer is we you just have the wrong expectations about life, that you're unhappy because your expectations for your life don't match the reality of your circumstance. So if you just simply accept your circumstance, uh, you, you know, you'll, you'll be happy or you'll be satisfied, you'll be at peace. And so if you see, again, somebody who is suffering, you know, the response is get over yourself. Uh, you're suffering because you're you're not willing to accept your circumstances. So now when you see a young girl who's being exploited, you know, the the way this is viewed is that, you know, you were you did something in your previous life that caused you to be born a woman and to be born in poverty and to be sold into into sexual slavery. Uh, and so you've earned this, you deserve this. And we're not going to step in to stop this or to intervene uh, because that would be a disservice to you. And, and so when you begin to understand a bit about the religious system and the impact of that religious system, coupled with the poverty and the corruption, and again, the, the devaluing of women in that culture and, and young girls in particular, um, you know, it, it, it begins to make sense why you know, something like sex trafficking would be happening out there in the open. Um, but again, the, you know, ideas are very powerful. And this idea of the image of God is an incredibly powerful idea uh, because I, you know, that's when, when AIM, you know, did, has done incredible work there in Swaypak, you know, they, they've gone in and they were initially able to uh, shut down one of the brothels and actually take it over and begin and, and used it as a Christian outreach center. And over time, they were able one by one to, to, to be able to shut down those brothels, working with some of the local officials and purchase the property and convert it into something that would benefit the community. Uh, the, 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 the keystone of, of, or the capstone of what they did was actually gain control of the hotel, and they turned it into a church called Rahab's House, and 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 it's now a, a, a Christian outreach center. But you know they, they rescue these girls from these brothels, and they they sadly can't return them to their families because the the families will actually turn around and sell them back into sexual slavery. Uh, and and so they they can't go back to their families, 
Uh, but part of the messaging that that you know uh, aim gives to these young women is that you are made in God's image, that you have infinite worth and value, that you are not tarnished, you're not to be discarded, but that you have infinite worth and value. And, and that message does take take hold and it it's it's a transformative message. You know, it's a, an incredibly transformative message. As far as like human trafficking, like here in the US, I know that it's kind of in the dark somewhat, I guess, in the US. What is the like the trend as far as like over the past couple of years? Is it something that's doubling or obviously increasing? Is there just what is the trend on like human trafficking here in the in the US? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And um I I I don't know um the the answer to that. Uh you know, I think it's probably very difficult to get a hold of of really right. good statistics because all of this is happening right. right, you know, in in the dark. Uh but I do see more and more attention being paid to the issue of human trafficking even by by secular people, which I'm extremely grateful for. Mm -hmm. And I think as more attention is is being focused on that, I think people are beginning to appreciate that this problem is again far greater than probably anybody imagined. But again, it, you know, if you live in a world that is secular, you know, there isn't any fundamental reason why exploiting a human being is is fun, is wrong, right? It, it's it's only wrong if the society deems it to be wrong, but there's it's not fundamentally wrong in a materialistic, atheistic, secular framework. Right. So when you went down to Cambodia, was it to raise awareness for sex trafficking or were they down there for another another reason that you guys partnered for this trip? Oh, well, I mean, the, the, the mission of AIM is to to play their role in, in bringing about really an end to, to child sex trafficking. And you know, I, I as a, a Christian apologist who works in the scientific arena, you know, there's a lot of reasons why I could give you scientifically why I think God exists and in, in, in the creation accounts in scripture are true, that there's a, a rational basis for the faith. But nothing has convinced me more that Christianity is true than to see the power of the gospel in action. Uh, be, because uh, what AIM has done in Svei Pak is nothing short of a miracle where they literally have changed that community, where, you know, they've driven the, this child sex trafficking out of the community for all intents and purposes. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable uh, to see, again, the transformation that's taking place in that community, and it's because of the gospel in action. You know, we, we, you know, um, the stories that we were told were, were this, that at one point, the people in that community, when they saw someone from the West, a, a white man enter into the village, they re, they understood why that person was there to, to ultimately to exploit young girls. Uh, and so it was a very, very dark place. And um, and now the, the, the story is, is that when, you know, somebody from the West a, you know, a white man walks into the, into the, into the village, people are grateful because they recognize that this person is most likely with aim and that they're here in the community to, to do good work, to, to bless the community. 
Uh, but it literally was a is a, a transformation in that community because of of the power of the gospel and the message of the gospel, uh, and and to see the lives that have been changed is is a, is a, is amazing. I, you know, I when you think about the how extensive uh, the the sex trafficking industry is in a country like Cambodia, to think that an idea like humans bear God's image or that of or the gospel that 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 God came to live among us to die for us that we could be reconciled to God and that the willingness of Christ to to take on the form of a human and to die for our sake reflects the enormous love and value that God places in each human life when that to think that that idea could actually overturn such an incredibly dark practice that is a huge money maker Sex trafficking generates billions of dollars, right? In in, in you know on a worldwide basis, uh, it's a highly lucrative you know business, if you will. To think that 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 idea of the gospel and the idea of the image of God could literally overturn that kind of evil and wickedness and transform a community from darkness into light is is amazing and it can only be possible if it actually is true at least in, in in my perspective it's kind of amazing that they are really in in Cambodia fighting a multi-front war you have the the spiritual side the buddhism that they're kind of combating that and the physical and mental trauma that these children are are going through and having to combat that and it it speaks to the power of the gospel to overcome everything we face here on earth but that's a um just a mighty effort that aim and other organizations have to face there well you know and 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 you know it, it's not easy work i i'm you know and i'm sure that the people that do this on a day in and day out basis have probably seen some very very horrifying things you know and and and, and you know the they are in my mind the, the real heroes these are the people that are on the the front lines really, you know, standing up against evil. And, you know, to me that, that, you know, I drew a, a lot of inspiration, but even conviction from that experience, because, you know, if I really believe that human beings bear God's image, and if as a Christian apologist, I can actually make a scientific argument that, that human beings are exceptional, then I really have a motivation, should have motivation beyond <laughs> just simply, you know, declaring that truth to actually living it out. And, and so it's very convicting in terms of what am I doing to stand up against evil? What am I doing to, to, um, to see those people that are invisible in our culture? To, you know, what am I doing to, to reach out to those people that are marginalized? And, you know, and so as Christians, I think when you understand the implications of the image of God, you know, you, you have an obligation, I think, to act against evil, to act against injustice in the world. Uh, and, and sadly, and, and, and I include myself in this, sadly, we oftentimes just simply don't do that, which we really should be doing, that we really should be committed to doing. I think we definitely shy away from any type of conflict or, you know, even yeah, I find myself on mission trips being more willing to step out there and be bold for certain things. And then I come home 
and then a week later I'm back to in my same element, yeah. right? I, yeah. I'm not really, quote unquote, changed, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, I understand that. So, so I'm kind of curious as a, as a biochemist, what led you to to feel the need to go to Cambodia to to help fight human trafficking? Well, you know, I, I it's partly it's the way that I'm wired, right? Um, you know, uh, I my wife and I, it's we've always been concerned about social justice issues. That's just the, the pa- a passion that we both share. And, and so, you know, we've always been involved in, in, in ministries, engaging homelessness and, 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 and that type of thing. So when this opportunity presented itself, it, it felt very natural for us to do. So it wasn't really my, my biochemistry that, that motivated me to do that. But, uh, but again, you know, when I, when I got there, I really began to to recognize, you know, how how important apologetics is, right? And and that you know, one again that that um, that if if you're able to to make a rational case for the Christian faith, uh, then and and to be able to demonstrate that it's true, then you know Christianity is more than just an idea. Right, you know, it, we we have a responsibility to do what we can to live according to the the principles of the kingdom of God, and and it should be transformative. And so, to me, the end of apologetics uh, isn't just simply, you know, winning an argument against you know a non-believer. You know, it it should be more than that. It should be using you know apologetics to be able to help people see the reality of God's existence with an idea of introducing them to the gospel. But then apologetics should also be something that really motivates us uh, to action. Uh, you know, to it should be a gateway to not only to evangelism, but it should be a gateway to really um, uh, to transformation and to being actively involved in, in, in transforming you know, the world around us uh, through, again, the power of the gospel, you know, and, and I, I, I interact with, with atheists all the time. And I can tell you this, uh, the, the many atheists who have very little regard for the Christian faith or for Christians have enormous amount of respect for Christianity and for Christians when they see Christians doing good work. Right. I, I, I've seen that time and time again. And so one of the most powerful apologetics that we we can ever bring to bear is the way that we live our lives. And are we really living uh, our lives in, in accordance with, you know, what the gospel demands of us? You know, and when we do, I think it's an incredibly powerful apologetic. Uh, and that's just something that I have to remind myself every day is that uh, it's not so much the arguments that I bring to bear or how clever they are. But it's it's really, you know, how am I living my life? And uh, and it really means going beyond just simply being a nice person. But am I really advocating again uh, for those people that can't advocate for themselves? I've got a question. Just um, how is it received? Like when when you go down there and you go to these 
brothels or these get FaceTime with these kids that are going through this and you tell them that, hey, I'm down here because Jesus loves you and and how that's received from somebody that may have never heard the gospel and how they how they say, well, how how could a God that loved me put me in this situation and how, how those conversations are? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I not ever had those conversations directly. Uh, you know, when, when we were there, AIM was very protective of yeah. exposing the, the girls who they had rescued <laughs> from just <laughs> well-meaning people <laughs> yeah. interacting with them. But, uh, but because we were doing some special projects with them, we had a chance on a couple of occasions to interact with some of the girls. And, and, and I can tell you this, um, I was, I was amazed at how much joy uh, those, those young women exuded. I mean, it, it was just a delight to be around them. They were so happy. They were so joyful. You would not have ever known the, the horrors that they had gone through uh, if, if you had just met them. And, 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 you know, they, they seem to have such a very positive self image of themselves and, and, you know, they were working in, in learning how to, to gain, to, to be gainfully employed, right. Which is very, very important, I think for, for people's self-worth. And, and so I didn't have those conversations, but I saw the after effects, but, you know, talking with some of the people at AIM, it, sometimes it can take a long time. You know, I mean, you can imagine being in a culture where the message is, you don't matter. You are of no value. You are of no worth. Uh, that that you're 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 brutalized, which just reinforces that messaging. You know, uh, you can imagine uh, how hard it, it must be after going through that for then someone to tell you that you are of infinite worth and value. Uh, it, it's it's not e an, an easy thing to do. All right, we're coming coming with the curveball here. How do different science disciplines kind of come together to support a common idea? And we're going to go with the Christian perspective, proving God exists. So you're a chemist by trade. Hugh Ross is an astrophysicist. Name any other science discipline. How do you all kind of come together to say, we know God exists. Here's the scientific evidence. Yeah, well, you know, to, to me... Um, there's a number of different ways we could we could go about doing that, but what I see as a, a Christian who is a scientist is that no matter what discipline you go to, there there is evidence for a creator's fingerprints, and it's typically in in the design. So when we look at the universe, we see you know this very powerful evidence for design. This is called the anthropic principle, you know, which, which involves the fine tuning of the constants of physics. Uh, but when we look at, you know, for example, our Earth, you know, and and the, the our solar system, the Earth-Moon system, you know, again, you see all this evidence for design where everything appears to be just right so that that life is possible. When I go into my, you know, discipline of of um, of chemistry and biochemistry, I just see, you know, overwhelming evidence for design. Uh, we see design in biological systems. And so everywhere you look, you, you see design. In fact, very few scientists 
regardless of their worldview, will deny that that there's design that's evident in nature. Even among biologists, many who again would reject belief in God, the the, the view is that there is design in biology. Uh, they just simply argue that that design can be explained by evolution as opposed by, to the, the handiwork of a creator. But but it's the fact that you see this pervasive evidence for design that I think, uh, regardless of the scientific discipline, each one contributes to that overall sense that the, that the universe and life in the universe, again, is designed. And, you know, to me, this this idea that, you know, this design could be explained by evolution is really more, much more of a philosophical commitment than actually something that's been demonstrated scientifically. You know, I mentioned the original life problem, which was critical to my conversion to Christianity. I can tell you this, nobody knows, for example, how life could have originated. Nobody knows how to explain the features of biochemical systems that are, that, you know, are, appear to be designed. Uh, the, the, these are questions that appear to be beyond scientific reach. Um, and, and so in the absence of having any direct evidence for an evolutionary origin of life, I think the only reasonable conclusion is that life must be the work of a creator. All right. So I'm going to go off memory here, which is terrible because uh, <laughs> Hugh was here several months ago, but I remember he talked about when the earth was being created, when it hit a certain oxygen level, which was the minimum level for uh, animals of certain size to exist, those animals showed up immediately, kind of from the yeah. top down, right? The biggest animals were there first. And then when it hit the next level, those size animals showed up immediately. Yeah. Is that a common scientific held belief? And if so, to me, to just a regular dude on the street, that seems to naturally argue against evolution. So what would yeah. an evolutionary, an evolutionist, how would they explain that away? Yeah, well, I mean, this to me is one of the reasons why I'm I'm skeptical of an evolutionary explanation for the, the origin and the history of life is because every time we look at what I would call the key transitions in life's history, where life is going from one regime of complexity to another, it always happens explosively in a in a geological instance. So you know, the origin of life is not only something that there is no scientific explanation for, but when life very first appears on earth, it appears, boom, in a geological instant. And the very first cells are incredibly complex, metabolically speaking. Uh, and then if we go to the origin of what are called eukaryotic cells, uh, again, we see something called the eukaryotic Big Bang. And this is a name given to it by uh, scientists working in this area by evolutionary biologists. This isn't something that that Christians are are bringing to the table. Uh, you know, Hugh was describing the the Cambrian explosion, where we have the origin of body plans, where now we see complex multicellular organism organs organisms animals that show up explosively. You know, out of nowhere. Uh, when we look at the origin of humanity. There's something called the sociocultural Big Bang, where out of nowhere, suddenly you see sophisticated behavior just exploding on the scene in the archaeological record that coincides with the origin of humans. And, and so these, these sequence of Big Bang events, to me, 
again, as you said, Daniel seemed to to be in, in you know contrary to what you'd expect from an evolutionary perspective. But this is exactly what I would expect, you know, from a, a creation model standpoint. Daniel's digging deep. Hey, recalling some. I had so many follow-up questions when Hugh was here before, and and I am. When this is over, I'm going to have so many follow-up questions for this one that I didn't think of in the moment as well. But. So this makes me think about before I became a Christian a lot. Because, you know, I used to, before I became a Christian, you know, I was one of those that could have kind of believed that there was a possibility for evolution out there and that maybe we did come from monkeys. I don't know. But, you know, the thing that brought me into Christ was, as you know, the more that I sat back and look at things, there's things that just couldn't be explained. And, you know, things happening in your life and things changing in your life that you just can't explain and it changes magically. And that just can't happen magically, right? Something has to be it. So I thought that was very interesting. Sure. That's great. I'm glad you said that in the microphone. We might find a use for that. (laughs) (laughs) But Fuzz, we're going to get you out of here on an easy one. We asked Hugh the same thing. So if you were talking to a little kid, and wanted to get them interested in science, what would you tell them? Uh, he thought it was easy. Maybe not so yeah, easy. Yeah, yeah, Getting no, with the tough still, one at the yeah. end. Uh, now, I, w- I would probably uh-uh. say that, um, y- 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 yeah, I would probably really emphasize the wonder, you know, and, you know, um, and, and try to, in- inc- you know, encourage their, their curiosity but you know, if this is a, a young person that is, um, that is, you know, a Christian that's that's in a Christian community, you know, I would say that you know, that you know that that God has, that the world that we live in is a world that God has created, that He He spoke this world into existence, and that we really should think about the world that we live in is really God's spoken word to us. And by studying the creation, it's a way for us to draw closer to God, and 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 that that as we learn more and more about the creation, we get more and more insight into who God is, and that you could be that person that maybe one day would discover something new about the creation that no one before you ever knew about, and that by discovering that. Uh, you would actually be discovering something new about God that you could then share with other people. So that that would be how I would uh, try to encourage at least a young Christian student to to begin to get some interest in science. Man, that got me motivated. You can discover something new about God. I mean, that's a great statement. Wow. It's never too late to change. That's right. <laughs> All right, Fano, what do, do you I, got? Do I do? So... Uh, we're uh, studying David uh, here in, on Wednesday nights at our church here. So this one just a good verse that I have uh, three verses that I enjoy that we um, that was on our little worksheet today. So talks about um, the battle not being ours, but his. And the battle's already been won. The victory's his. Everything's his. It's not about us. So this comes from uh, Psalm 44, uh, 6 through 8. It says, I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory but you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. And God, we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. So just a reminder that it's it's uh, his battle, that it's already won. 
That fits in good, too, with the trafficking mm-hmm. and everything else. We mm-hmm. just got to be the hands and feet. Yeah. He's already won it. So. Sure. Yeah. Fuzz, thank you so much for being on here. Uh, man, this was great, and we could do three more episodes with you as well. <laughs> but uh, thank you for coming on, sharing something uh, fun and, and uh, also sharing about something very serious that's going on um, in, our, in our country and all around the world. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks for tuning in. You guys know it. We love you. God loves you more. See you next week. We hope you are enjoying GPS to God. Rate, review, and subscribe across every platform you use. Help us spread the word by telling your friends and family to watch, listen, and subscribe.